Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist to Equip the Church to be hearers and doers of the Word. My name is Tim Elmore, and I'm the lead pastor of Memorial Baptist Church, Stratford, Ontario. And I'm Marshall Morton, the associate pastor at NBC in Stratford. And today we have a special guest. Yeah, we do. Uh, he is the director of community at Emmanuel in Nashville. He is the co-host of Happy Ramp Podcast, and he blogs at BarnabasPiper.com. And he is Barnabas Piper. Yeah. Barnabas, well, Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, I do, in fact, blog at the website named after me. It's true. <laughs> so they, they let you publish there. That's great of them. That's right. They did, whoever they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, what we want to talk about today is uh, you have uh, a couple of books that are being re-released through mm-hmm. the Good Book Company as a new publisher. Uh, a few months ago, you re-released... Actually, what does time matter anymore? Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't know the difference between a few months and you know, two weeks and a few hours at this point. It all just time is a flat circle, and and I don't know what's going on. At at some point, there was the re-release of the book "Help My Unbelief," which is a, a great book. You you wrote a few years back, but again re-released, and uh, a great book on helping people sort of deal with doubt and questions in a healthy way. Uh, I, I had the chance to review that book for the Gospel Coalition, and uh, it was fantastic. I just take an opportunity to thank you for that and uh, recommend it to everyone. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and and then now you have the re-release of The Pastor's Kid, uh, which has just come out this month. And, uh, and to start this conversation off, I, I want to pass it over to Marshall and let him share with you the epiphany that he had uh, when he first started reading The Pastor's Kid. So go ahead, Marshall. Tell us what you learned. Well, okay. So what was kind of funny about this whole situation was we we knew that we were going to be chatting with you about this book. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it for the conversation we were going to have. And I get about two chapters in, and I finally clicked that my 11-month-old daughter is a PK. Like for, I never thought of her in that way. Right. And I was like 25 pages into your book and I was like, wait, her name's Ayla. And I'm like, Ayla is a PK. And for some reason it just finally clicked. I've only been in the ministry about as long as she's been alive, but it's just kind of a weird, there's this weird thing that dawned on me. And so suddenly I'm start, suddenly I'm reading it with kind of a, a newer level of intensity thinking like, Oh, I, I really need to pay attention here. Like not just for the interview, but for, for life. Well, I'm, I'm glad you caught it when she was 11 months old and not, you know, 11 years or 21 or, you know, somewhere down the road where the damage may have already been done. Right. Yeah. So yeah. did you take an opportunity to sit down with Ayla and talk about the things that you learned? Yeah. Yet? Yeah. I took some notes and we had a, you know, we had a great discussion. <laughs> Ayla, do you feel pressure from people at the church to be anything? Right. And she threw her oatmeal at you. That's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, right. So, so the that we're both pastors. We both have really young kids, mm-hmm. um, and so it's helpful for us, I think, to to take this on at an early stage. Uh, so, what I what I want to do is this sort of starting it off, talking about you take a lot of time at the beginning talking about what the book's not, mm. right? So, the book is not a way of you saying this is every PK's experience, and mm-hmm. it's not saying that the PK experience is uniform in such a way that there won't be uh, outliers who, who would read it and say, eh, not really my experience, uh, nor are you sort of researching this 
in a, in a way is to say, you know, you're going to quantify all of the, uh, the things that you have to say. It's kind of a just sort of hear me out kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And it's also not, you know, just to add to that, it's not an expose of, you know, my family or mm-hmm. why I hate the church. Um, I mean, I'm in church ministry now, so if I hated it, there'd be a whole, a whole bunch of layers to that problem. Um, yeah, it's my goal was to try to share what is a common experience amongst most pastors, kids who I've interacted with and kind of give it a, a first person plural voice. So, so speaking for us, sort of a we voice, um, and yeah, and it, you know, anytime you do that, there are exceptions. People can say, well, that's, that, that wasn't my experience. That's fine. It's a lot of people's experience. It's, it's worth listening to, I think. Um, and it's shockingly common right. how the things that I shared are, are just similar, whether it was a church of a hundred people or a thousand people, um, cross denominations, uh, all across the country. Even I've heard from pastors, kids in, in Europe and South America and Southeast Asia who have, who have expressed similar experiences in, in their own context as well. So there's, there is a real thread of commonality and just mm. trying to speak from that perspective and kind of on behalf of pastors, kids as a whole. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that because there's uh, when, when people have a famous dad, there are sort of two ways that people can go uh, either to be 2.0 or to say, this is uh, me going to leverage this to just expose all the skeletons in the closet of my family. Uh, and, and either way, it helps a person sort of capitalize off of that. And uh, and you're not doing either in this. You're just saying, hey, this is uh, kind of just what it is. Mm. I, I've qu- yeah, I, I didn't have any interest in, certainly no interest in tearing my family down. Um, I love my parents. And, you know, we've had differences over the years, but no, you know, it's not a, don't have a fractious relationship and I'm not trying to, yeah, I'm not trying to kind of springboard off my dad's success into, you know, being a, a watered down, like you said, a 2.0 version of that. And usually in, in, you know, in technology 2.0 improves in people mm-hmm. 2.0 is almost always worse. So, uh, I had no interest in that either. Right. Now, was there, I was curious too, like, did you come to a point in your life? Was there a day where you just decided like, I got to write this book or is this kind of something that you've been mulling over for some time? It, it was closer to, uh, closer to more of an epiphany, uh, than it was a, a long-term thought process. Um, I didn't really start writing at all until my mid twenties. So 26, 27, well, start writing for anybody to read, you know, I wrote for school and things like that. But, um, and so I did that for a couple of years and then I was asked to write a couple articles on, uh, the pastor's kid, one for the gospel coalition, one for, I think Ligonier, um, kind of just two shorter pieces, you know, 800 words, a thousand words on different aspects of it. And in writing those two things happened. One was I realized I have a lot more to say than 800 or a thousand words. And two is there's a really strong response to this, Mm. um, in terms of people's, especially other pastors, kids kind of the yes, me too kind of response to it. And, you know, thanks for putting that into words type of thing. And, um, and so I just started trying to 
mine my own thoughts in terms of what what else is in there and put it into notes and and then intentionally correspond with pastors kids around the country most of whom I didn't know at all just kind of found them on social media one of the one of the good things that social media can bring about right um, those sort of connections and and just sent them a bunch of questions and said hey has this been your experience you know yes or no on a scale of one to ten kind of thing and I think I, I probably got 40 or 50 responses back and all but one almost universally said, yes, this has been my experience, you know, and expectations, pressures, whatever it is that helped me know that I wasn't crazy. Um, my experience wasn't sort of the, the, the statistically anomalous one. And from there, it was just a matter of seeing if a deciding if I wanted to write a book, you know, do I have the chops for it and B seeing if anybody wanted to publish it. And initially I went, it was published by David C. Cook and the people who were there at the time were, were eager to publish it and great to work with. So yeah, it was, it was a, it was a much shorter process than like something that had been a goal and an aim. It just sort of came about because, you know, that I lit a match and found out that there was a lot of dry tinder. So at what point in that did you uh, go to the family and say, Hey, I, uh, I got a book that I'm working on. Uh, was it was it before? Was it was it after the book was written? At what point did you present it to the family and say, "Hey, I, I got this thing"? Uh, it was probably somewhere around the time of conversations with the publisher. So, not during the sort of development of the idea process, as much as you know, once I was either in conversations or had signed with the publisher, so that this was a real thing. But I didn't interact with them at all about the content of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad wrote the forward for it, right? But he didn't see it until I sent it to him to write the forward for it. So there wasn't a lot of sharing it, and and again, I didn't feel the need because I wasn't sharing their story. Um, right. right. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, delving into my brother's or sister's relationship with my parents, and you know, it wasn't a. You know, I was kind of revealing other people's business. Um, and so I just, I felt like for the sake of um, both having a voice as a writer, as well as just being as accurate as I can to my experience and, and then my interactions with other pastor's kids, I was just going to go for it. And um, so, yeah, I don't think my siblings saw it until it was all the way published. And then I sent them a copy so, or gave them a copy. Right. So let's get into the book a little bit and talk about some of the, the content of it that uh, particularly stuck out to us. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was, Early on, you talk about the idea of sermon illustrations and how the, one of the, the biggest issues is that a PK can be known, but not really known, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that there's a lot of superficial knowledge because of things like you know, they're high profile sort of within the church, uh, and, and the sermon illustrations that give people a peek into what's going on, although the, the person's not really known. And, and this is something that sort of grabbed me, because my kids are young enough that they really like being talked about in the sermon. And when I, <laughs> when I say their names, they're always like, I can watch them just sort of like light up, right? Right. Uh, but knowing all along that eventually that's going to run out. Uh, and, and so I, I kind of took two things from that. One, there is a danger would you say, in, in presenting this sort of shallow knowledge? And the other is, the more famous you become as a pastor, the more, the more wide-sweeping and dangerous that that becomes, uh, <laughs> yeah. which, is, which is kind of okay for me because not being famous is sort of my wheelhouse. That's what I do best. 
Um, would you consider yourself an expert at that? I, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> you put in your 10,000 hours as not famous. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the sermon illustration thing, I, I, the other thing that I thought in that is I thought this is going to really hit pastors and all because pastors have lots of kids. Right. That's just sort of a thing, especially reformed pastors. The families yeah. are large and they have lots of kids. And to be honest with you, not to share all the trade secrets. That's kind of why kids make for amazing sermon illustrations because they're unfiltered. And they're also cheap labor. Don't forget that. <laughs> they such, they are. They are. And uh, and, and the, the congregation loves it. Right. They eat them up. They, they love those sort of children analogies. And so if we start restricting pastors abilities to use their kids as sermon illustrations, how does that affect the pastor's family and the size of pastor's families? How does it, yeah, <laughs> the size of pastors. <clears throat> you know, I haven't thought about it in terms of that. Like, is this, <laughs> is this like a, a prophylactic or something? That's, <laughs> that's, it's, a, it's a new realm for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the illustration thing is tricky because I, I've had pastors come up and they're like, well, what do you recommend? And I'm like, well, I don't know your kids and I don't know your church. Mm. And so it's, I'm not going to give you any hard and fast rules about, you know, once per sermon, once per month, whatever. It just, it has to be a situation where the pastors are conscientious of how their kids do react. What is the comfort level? And then what kind of stories are being told? Sure. Um, you know, are you, are you revealing something that could be embarrassing or touchy or uncomfortable? So on, on the positive side, the pastor at our church was preaching this last Sunday and he, he used his daughter in an illustration, but it was just a very quick snapshot of their relationship because he was talking about God being um, the perfect father, you know, sort of the, if you as, as evil ones can give good gifts. And he kind of talked about how he enjoys how his daughter will come with a request and he enjoys giving to her. And that was kind of the extent of it. There's nothing in that that's going to, at any point in her life, put her in a vulnerable spot. Her father enjoys giving things. She doesn't hesitate to ask. That all sounds fine. Um, if he had revealed something about her, like throwing a temper tantrum and then using that, all of a sudden he's painted her in a light that is not super favorable, even though every kid does that. You know, it's just like every other kid, but it sounds different when it comes from the pulpit. Yeah. So I think there's, there's just, there has to be a, a real significant conscientious reality by the pastor that when you mention your children's names, period, they are now noticed in a way that other kids are not. And mm -hmm. that has a cumulative effect over time. And, um, and you just, you need to figure out how are you, how are you doing that? How are they feeling about it? And then what, what additional pressure is being put on them because people know stuff about them from your sermons that they wouldn't have necessarily known otherwise. Yeah, and I guess there's no reason for a sermon to be written in secret. You could always just go to the kid and say, hey, I was thinking about using this this week. This yeah. is what I'm trying to illustrate, uh, but it has to do with you. And uh, I just thought I'd, I'd put it out there and see what you think. Well, I, and I think, especially as the kids get into middle school and teen years, the call them the self-conscious years, um, that's a really significant thing for the relationship between a pastor and child too, because you're, you're giving them permission to have a little bit of say-so, which is also significant in terms of trust and maturity and these, these different aspects of just growing up. So, so for them to say, yeah, I'd rather you didn't. Hmm. Um, and then you say, okay, and you find a different story about your own childhood or when you read in a book, 
you know, being a reformed pastor, it's almost guaranteed to be like Lord of the Rings or something C.S. Lewis wrote. <laughs> but, uh, you know, go for one of those. Those are those are safe ground. Yeah. Or or you could still use the illustration, but just sort of lightly change the name, the first letter of a name and that sort of not quite ambiguous hypothetical yeah or just yeah it's what authors do all the time when they when they don't have permission to use a story they just change names right. and change we'll call the names. guy trevor because that's actually <laughs> yeah. his name or or the classic i know a guy who it's mm. like asking for a friend kind of thing you're like sure. i'm telling a story of a friend who may or may not live in my home and be me <laughs> right right one of the analogies you used uh early on in the book that i found helpful uh was that of a pressure cooker Right. It resonated with me because we recently bought about one of those instant pot things and uh, my wife and I use it like crazy. But when you were talking about this whole idea of like the, the additional pressure that's put on PKs, right? Like this is something that, you know, Tim and I uh, as pastors, right? Like we've, we've willingly chosen a career knowing that there's going to be that kind of pressure, but, but our kids, they don't really get a say in that. Like that's just something mm-hmm. that they just inherit because they're our kids. Right. So um, it was interesting to kind of like, think through that and think about how, how that affects little ones that much, right? Like, like usually children don't get that degree of pressure put on them from a larger community than their, than just their family. And, uh, that was really eye opening for me. I thought that was kind of meaningful cause I never thought about that before. Yeah. The, the pressure cooker thing is, I, I use that illustration, not just because of the additional pressure on the pastor's kid, but because from the outside, it looks just like anything else. Like all kids have a certain amount of expectation, pressure, whatever, you know, there's, so that would be, if you're to to extend the illustration, that's just like a pot with water and something else in it, and you're going to boil it and it cooks over time. But the pressure cooker does the exact same thing, but faster and at higher temperatures and uh, potentially explosive if you get it wrong. Um, And and that's kind of the nature of the pastor's kid. It's the same stuff, just magnified. So pressure to be a certain way, to act a certain way, to, um, you know, it, kind of achieve certain standards. And, and so it's, it can be a little bit hard to pick up on because the ingredients and kind of what's happening look like, like an instant pot looks just like a crock pot, mm-hmm. except the crock pot just cooks really slow and the instant pot in theory is instant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's that aspect as well. It just, it, it, it's easy to overlook and kind of miss what's happening to the pastor's kids. And then the, the aspect that you brought up of the lack of choice, um, no pastor's kid. Well, I shouldn't say no, very few pastor's kids have had a lot of say in the call of their parents. They haven't sat down with them and said, you know, I think God is calling me to the pastor. Do you think he's calling you to be a pastor's kid? And you just right. sort of get hauled into it. They're just the trailer attached to the, to the whole, the whole caravan here. And, uh, and so there's, and that, that adds to some of the difficulty as well, because there just is very little freedom and choice in it, which again, most of us don't give our kids a lot of freedom and choice because they're kids, but there needs to be an awareness of what they have been pulled and dragged into. Again, part of, you know, that's kind of the big picture of why I wrote the book in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, the pressure cooker analogy really took off sort of later in the book when you were talking about uh, what it means to be in, in different lanes, right. And, and the danger of sort of shifting lanes uh, because in that you talked about the lifestyle lane and all of the things that weren't allowed. 
Uh, I'm not a PK, but I was a church kid. And, and reading that, I was literally laughing at all of those things, just being like, yep, 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 yep. Same experience. I, I'm just a few years older than you. Uh, so we sort of grew up in the same time. I, I think much of that was probably due to the interpretations of a particular organization that spent the 80s and 90s focused particularly on the family um, and, and helping people to understand how it is that the family could operate in a Christian way. Uh, and so a lot of those things were familiar, but I could, I could as I was reading, be like, no, I, I see how this would be amplified as a PK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in most Christian homes, for those of us who are, of a, you know, like the, the older millennials or the younger Gen Xers, I don't know where we fall in the, it, of that generation. Sure. Um, yeah, all of, us, all of us have some common stories of what was expected of us, what we could do, couldn't do, et cetera. The pastor's kid just gets it from everybody. It, we, we catch it on all sides um, in terms of, because for whatever reason, there are lots of people in the church who feel very comfortable either telling the pastor's kid to his or her face, you're not supposed to do that. You're a pastor's kid or telling our parents, we're not supposed to do that. We're a pastor's kid. Um, and so we just, there's sort of like a, a collection of tattletales. Um, and yeah, it, it, and that just, after a while, you're just like, Oh, everybody's watching me. I don't, there's no room to step out of line. And so, yeah, you kind of develop a, one of a handful of defense mechanisms, either just like giving everybody, you know, giving everybody the finger and walking away and being like, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's one version, uh, sort of becoming the chameleon where you just sort of, uh, you kind of slide into whatever is expected of you in any situation. Um, or then like the politician who sort of puts on a happy face and reveals nothing mm-hmm. and doesn't really answer any questions. And you just sort of navigate your way through life being charming and, and fairly empty in your interactions with people because how else do you do it when you're like, everybody wants me to be something. Everybody has a standard for me. And I want to say also, most people in the church are incredibly well-intentioned. Sure. Very few people are coming at the pastor's kid or the pastor's family with the intent of being judgmental, being harmful, being aggressive. Um, but if seven different people on a Sunday make a comment to you or about you, all of them have innocent intent but that's like seven times the observation, seven times the pressure, and it and it just compiles. Yeah, yeah. And you, at one point of that, sort of changing the lane things. This is one thing that Marshall's talking about. You want to talk about the uh, the driving fast versus driving slow, kind of the difference between uh, a kid and their father. Oh yeah, I just thought that was I. I, I kind of would chuckle at that, right? Because that's kind of like how my dad can kind of drive sometimes too. Right. Like, so just like right hand lane, you know, just, just at the speed limit or below. And, uh, and yeah, we all have that inclination and wanted to kind of get into the left lane and blow past them. But, um, I thought that was, that was a helpful illustration, right? Like you're, you, you identify that, you know, this isn't someone going somewhere else we're headed for the same destination. Right. But, but we need to be given a certain measure of freedom to do that in our own way. And the other analogy was similar. Like you we were talking about like prefabricated houses mm-hmm. versus so being being kind of handed this pre-built faith that you're expected to just step into and just own rather than, you know, the preferable option, which would be to give, you know, our kids the tools to build something new something unique that is theirs right that they share with god and not just something that we've just kind of handed to them on a platter and i I just found that really um 
Yeah, really thought provoking and and convicting. Even though I haven't done that yet, I could see <laughs> my own personal tendency to do that as my children yeah. get older, right? Yeah, I so I just recently went and and reread the audiobook to to be re-released as well and I got to that section and uh, I have two daughters who are 14 and 11 and it's just been in the last year that I've moved from the the publishing world into church ministry and so reading that section about both both the the changing lanes aspect to the idea that we are going to the same like this is the same faith we are just arriving at our destination in at different speeds and you know we're going we're, we're gonna to handle this a little bit differently. And then the prefab housing one of yeah, the idea of give them, give them the tools, give them the, the ability and give them the materials. That's terrifying. You know, when I wrote it, I was thinking from my perspective, give me this stuff. Mm-hmm. When I read it uh, a month ago or three weeks ago, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm, the shoe is on the other foot now. Mm-hmm. So I have to live up to what I asked for here. And like, this is, this is what my kids need. And I'm not a senior pastor. So there is a different, you know, there's kind of a scalability to this. And thankfully I'm at a church that they really care for the, the, the staff families well. So there's that that's helpful as well. But bottom line is I still need to do that. I need to give my, my daughters that the, what are the, the core elements of a Christian faith? What are the tools to think, to understand, to grow, and then let the Holy spirit kind of help them navigate their life instead of me giving them the, the dot to dots of, of how it's supposed to look like to, to grow as a Christian. Yeah. I'm actually really glad to hear you say that, uh, because coming at it from the pastor's side, uh, that was a really difficult part for me uh, because I, I'm reading it and, it and it makes perfect sense. It wasn't difficult in such a way that I would look at it and I would think, well, I don't know what he's talking about here. Or he, you know, I can't wait to call him out. But difficult in the way that you're saying, like this is turning over something very precious and very important, right? In, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways, even eternally significant. And, and reading that and thinking about from the pastor's side, not just with the kids, because that, that's not something that I'm sort of getting into yet. Right now, at this point, my kids just think that everything I say is either wise or funny or whatever, right? <laughs> um, which will probably last. I, I think it doesn't last for most dads, but it'll probably last for me. Um, that's good. Yeah, it's always good to think of yourself as the exception to the norm. <laughs> it is. Yeah, so that's that's just where I'm going with it. Uh, but but even with my wife, right? Like the, the idea, like you talk about like pastoring your family isn't necessarily just meaning that you're the answer man in the same way you are at the church. Because at the church, I'm expected to have an opinion on everything that comes in. Uh, and people just sort of show up with the question, hey, this fringe thing going on in society, surely you have a biblical answer to this. And, and I want to bring that home sometimes. And it's difficult for me Sometimes when my wife isn't really as interested in my opinion, but she's going <laughs> to... She's less impressed with you than the people in the congregation. 100%, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I laughed because you talk about sometimes when you'll blog or write and people say, well, what would your dad say? And I thought, I get the same thing. But people aren't saying to me, what would your dad say? People are saying, well, what would Barnabas's dad say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so... Well, I'm glad to know people are wielding his name as a weapon towards others as well. And I, I'm not the only one who gets that. <laughs> yeah. The, the pastoring your family thing is, is one that I, 
I balk at just because because of the expectations placed on pastors. Like you said, the expectation, first of all, those expectations are problematic. Like you, sure. the expectation that, that anybody on a church staff should be able to help resolve issues of like, how should we handle COVID-19 as a society? Wait, you want the theologically educated guy to answer this? He can help you trust God in the midst of a thing that we haven't figured out. That's, (laughs) that's his job, but you know, and then how do I handle getting out of debt? How do I handle a marital crisis? How do I handle a child who walked away from the faith? How do I mean, just all the way down the line, you have to have an answer for all of it, Mm -hmm. which is not fair. Um, but then yeah, pastors often bring that home and kind of respond to our families the same way instead of instead of in a fatherly way, you know, where there's, there's wisdom, but there's also just humanity and saying, you know, I'm not really an expert at this and let's explore it together. Or what do you think? Or just sort of the, the ways that, that give the framework of trusting in God, the framework of the gospel and kind of leave the specifics in God's hands. Sometimes that's hard to do. And I think it's, I don't know if it's harder to do with the church or harder to do with your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's hard in both cases. Yeah, it is because there's just like one of the things that you said in there is that that, that expectation becomes a point of pride for one pastor yeah. and a crushing weight for others. Um and uh and that's that's kind of where I was because when I was reading your your sort of leading up to that when you're like he's got to be able to answer this and this and this and this and and no one can do that. My first thought was, you know, my heart is to say, well, watch you know sort of like a hold my communion cup and uh <laughs> and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and uh but then but then that line then i read that line about the point of pride versus uh the crushing blow and thinking one i'm fooling myself to think that i can answer those questions because i'm not that good mm. uh and two i do allow it to become a point of pride and i do bring it home and and that's the reason why i'm offended when I give an answer on something and my wife says, uh, well, let's see what DG has to say about it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll form our opinion, right? It's, it's a pride issue. And I, I think pride and feeling crushed are, it's like a pendulum. You just kind of can swing from one to the other as well, because, you know, pride is, is always inaccurate. You know, it's, it's uh, thinking too much of ourselves. And so then when, when we don't live up to our own pride, pendulum swings the other way and we feel like failure for, yeah, I just, I can't do all this. I can't answer this. It's too much of a burden to bear. And yeah. And that's, that's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing for pastors to navigate without just sort of that centered realization that, you know, I depend on the Lord for what I can do. I'm honest about what I can't do. And the people have to kind of come to terms with who they've, who they've put in the pulpit, but no pastor is called to be that guy. Hmm. Yeah. And, and what I love so much about this book too, is just, you know, as you're trying to address all of these common problems, like the answer for this is grace essentially, right? Mm -hmm. The, The answer is, is us relying more on God's grace for our deficiencies and also showing more grace to one another, right? Whether it's, you know, the, the pastor towards his children or the children towards the their pastoral parents or the, the relationship between the church and the minister. Like, I just, I really like that because that is, that is really the solution for both that crushing weight and the pride that we become so susceptible to. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think 
that kind of the three-way relationship between pastors, pastors, kids, and church, all of whom relate to each other, can be remotely healthy without a profound amount of grace. Um, the church needs to give grace to the pastor for his his limitations and inevitable inevitable you know not necessarily moral screw-ups but just inabilities to do certain things pastors are far from perfect as we all know uh the pastor's kid needs profound grace from both church and parents and pastors uh and pastor spouses need grace from their kids you know what one of the risks i ran in writing this book and i and there have been some people who have misread it this way is essentially reading it as sort of the the license to morally beat on pastors and, and that's not fair because the pastor's kid needs to understand the, the parents well enough to know their need for grace, their need for grace in the eyes of God, their need for grace as inexperienced parents or just as parents who, who make mistakes. And uh, yeah, so it just, it has to be, grace has to be interwoven into all of this or it, it breaks down pretty, pretty significantly and pretty quickly. Yeah. And a lot of that comes down to the idea of the expectation right? Like, what is it that you're expecting from these mm -hmm. people? Are you expecting them to be something other than human? Are you expecting them to be all right? So I, I've gotten a lot of good advice from older pastors over the years. Uh, the worst bit of advice I ever got, because I I surrendered to called ministry uh, at the age of like 18, started into youth pastoring and everything. And, and I had a, a pastor who was probably in his late 60s come to me and say, I just want you to know that a a pastor is like a wasp. They're born already full grown. Mm. And even at 18, I thought, I hope that's wrong. <laughs> I hope and that's everybody wrong. Everybody you've pastored since hopes it's wrong too. <laughs> right. You, you mean to tell me that at 18, I've already got everything that I need to do this well. That can't be right. Uh, but a lot of times that's the expectation, right? You step into the office and you've got this all figured out. Um, and, and then for the pastor's kids... You've been in that home, like obviously your dad's got it all together, uh, and so now you've grown up in that perfect home, and uh, and that means you've got it all together, and and that's just not a reasonable expectation. Yeah, and, and that I, I'm still hung up on uh, born fully formed. That's that's insanity. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I I moved from publishing into ministry at 36, and. Um, yeah, I don't feel remotely fully formed. Um, don't, I mean, just, which, which I find a, a ton of freedom in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it's, it's freedom because it's, I, I can, I can admit to not knowing things. I can admit to needing to grow. I can ask for help with stuff. I can, uh, I can apologize for stuff. If I was fully formed, then that just means I'm really bad. Like I was really badly formed. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so there, there is a, there's a ton of freedom in not being fully formed and in just saying, I need a lot of grace. And, uh, and then I need, you know, the, the continuing movement of the spirit to, to push me along in progress. And, and I also encouraged like by my own dad, my dad's 70 something, 74. And, and he, he doesn't think he's fully formed, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> he's, he's going to keep being formed until he's dead. Mm -hmm. And then, and then kind of there's, there is fully formed. Mm. And, uh, and he has spoken that way about himself 
and about the Christian experience for my entire life, which I'm really grateful for, because there's just not a sense of resting on your laurels or the kind of the impending failure of if this is me as fully formed, I should just quit because I'm terrible at this. Right. No, I, I've come to find out that he's the guy was actually perfectly wrong. Right. Like it, not that you're born fully formed, but you'll die not being perfectly formed. Mm. Right. Uh yeah, he just yeah he was he got that wrong in like he didn't even get partial credit. It's just <laughs> no. all the way wrong, <laughs> right? I, I think I think the sentiment maybe behind it was uh, a desire to talk about the sufficiency of God and and the mm-hmm. Word and that sort of thing. But uh, I just don't think it worked. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I think there's there's an element of truth in like in if there's a genuine calling from the Lord, there is a there's an anchor there that you have all you need. Right. to succeed at this right. in but again that rests entirely on god's side not really on you so to say you are born fully formed is i don't even know I, it doesn't communicate that at all it <laughs> communicates something opposite to what he may have been trying to say yeah no i i just found i found that uh you know the the, the second half of the book in particular um really gave me a lot of tools and a lot of frameworks to start thinking through the relationship that I have with my family, um, which is, you know, a young family, a growing family. Um, like for me, you know, I recently came into ministry like a year ago, like before that I was just the guy who sold insurance at church. Right. And then now, you know, now being on the pastoral team and, and, and kind of evaluating, okay, here are some things that might be coming down the road. Like here's, here's some of the ways that my, my child or children, Lord willing might be feeling and how can I address that? Right. And it was just, it was good reminders for me. Like just the, just the simple stuff. Like, you know, my family, they need the best of me. They, they need my time. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they don't necessarily need me to be, you know, um, you know, a, a theologian first and foremost, right. They need me to be a, a father or a husband, and, uh, I, I just, I just appreciate, um, that, that part of the book so much because it was just, it just kind of anchored me and just kind of reminded me of, of what my role really is. And it's not to have, you know, that doctrinal, um, point for each and every situation, but it's to just be a dad, to be a husband. And so, yeah, it was, that was great. Yeah. It was, so we're recording this, uh, the day after father's day, mm-hmm. um, and, so yesterday uh, on social media, I just shared a whole bunch of stuff I learned from my dad that is outside of the realm of what anybody knows him for. You know, he's known for preaching and for writing and, you know, that the public face of pastorate. And so it was stuff about like how to field a ground ball and how to set a hook when you catch a fish and how to work hard. And, and, and all of that is the outcome of what, of what you just said that idea that the best things I got from him um, are, are not when he was trying to pastor me, but when he was just an invested dad. And it was, it was the, the everyday stuff, the advice, the fun, being a fun dad in whatever your version of fun is. Like fun can be very book oriented. It can be very outdoorsy. It can be building stuff, but just like engaging enjoyment with your kids um, is so significant. Because I, theology matters more to me when I enjoy the person whose theology it is. And it's a lot easier to take your parents' beliefs seriously when they're the kind of person you would like to be. Hmm. 
And, uh, and so that in those aspects of my dad are the ones that I look at and I go, yeah, when I, as you know, as I continue to grow as a father and as a man, I'd like to get better at those things. And that's, that meshes with, with the, the biblical and theological, um, in a pretty significant way. And I think about it often that the things I remember most about my childhood and that I, that I remember most fondly are not very pastoral in the stereotypical terms. They're much more fatherly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking when I was reading through this and I, I was actually sitting on the front porch reading it while my kids were playing out there in the yard and, and sort of watching them. And I was thinking about, there's this sort of general lesson in this that is, that is maybe a, a general parenting lesson that is focused in the book specifically on a pastor's family, but the, the weighing the balance of nature and nurture uh, that we can, we can really expect too much out of the nurture side. Right. And, and all kinds of parents do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want my son to grow up being a Cardinals fan, but we're raising our kids in Canada. He might be a Blue Jays fan. Right. That's a small thing. That's a very small thing. Well, that's a medium sized thing. <laughs> right. Uh, but but then there are, there well, are since pe- there's no baseball right now. It's yeah, it's kind of a not applicable. Thing, we're a few so. weeks <laughs> out, a few weeks out from a short and abbreviated season. Uh, but but. When it, when it comes to this, like entrepreneurs who start a business can put a lot of weight on their kids to follow in those footsteps and to take on that business and think, I've raised you in this way, right? And, and we can over-exaggerate what the nurture is, and we sometimes we just got to realize, hey, let's learn who the kid is going to be uh, yeah. and, and let them be themselves. And that's, you know, and, and this, this connects back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the two different examples of changing lanes or of giving materials and tools and then and letting them build. Because this is when, when we put too much into the, into the nurture side of things or sort of going to try to form this little clay creature, that is sort of the prefab house or the you need to drive exactly like this rather than there's a lot of ways to follow Jesus. You might mm-hmm. do it as an artist. You might do it as a business person. You might do it as a teacher or as a stay at home parent or as a, or, or in ministry, you might go into vocational ministry. One of the most surprising things about interacting with pastors kids for me is the number of us who have ended up back in ministry. Mm-hmm. Most of us have also said we would never do that. And yet here we are. Um, and, and so there's all of those are ways that God can direct people and it's hard. It's hard for a lot of pastors. It, it, I mean, it almost feels like it seems to me that some pastors feel like they're, they're kind of allowing their kids to, to walk away from what is best. Right. If their child says, yeah, I really want to be a lawyer. I really want to be, you know, a police officer. I really want to be an architect. And that's the, you know, God's given them those gifts and they go that direction as a faithful Christian, as opposed to saying, I really want to go to seminary. I really want to teach the Bible. Um, and, and one is not less than the other. There's just, they're different lanes going in the same direction. Yeah. And this is, this is obviously not saying we give our kids freedom to the point that we would not guide them toward Christ. Right. Uh, I, I was sort of like on the fringes of observing a church, uh, that, that had gotten to a point where they would have church, but they just sort of decided their kids wouldn't like it. And so the kids just played in the foyer the whole time. 
And then once the parents were done with church, they had sort of like pick up the kids and whatever mess was made and go home. And that was their way of saying, you know, this is our faith. And if it, the kids need to sort of like have this faith for faith for themselves, or even now when I hear like, you know, preteen kids or parents of preteens that are just like, you know, my kid doesn't want to come to church and I don't think I can make them. Um, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I, I remember this as a junior high kid. I remember being pretty tired one Sunday morning and telling my dad, just, just being like, you know what, I'm just going to be bold with this. And my dad came in. He's like, what are you doing in bed? And I said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to go today. I'm not feeling up to it. And he walked out of the room laughing, right? Like, oh, that's cute. Tim thought he had a choice in this, right? There, there is, there's a different thing to saying, no, there is going to be a, a desire for you, and we are going to move you in the direction of understanding what it means to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. How you express that is where we're talking about freedom. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and there's also, I mean, there's a big difference between forcing your kids to go to church I mean, if, if you have gotten to the point of having to force your kids, there's a, there's a, a few reasons that could be. Some of it is just the individual heart sure. hardness of a child. It also could be like, maybe you made church miserable for your kids from the get-go and you need to change some things. Mm -hmm. uh, if It's worth listening. If your kids hate going to church, what is it about church that they hate? Mm -hmm. It might be, it might be just hardness of heart. It might be, especially if you're a pastor, all of the things that I wrote about in the book that have made church an insufferable experience for some, for some people, mm -hmm. or, you know, just a really, a really oppressive or boring or something combination. So that's, that's it. Those are worth considering. I think the other aspect is just, you can make church a priority for your family in such a way that it just isn't a choice. Like you don't wake up on a Sunday morning and go, what should we do? It's assumed. The, the choice starts at about noon when you're figuring out what do you do after church, mm -hmm. but like they don't have a choice of going to school. They don't have a, they, they, if they're in a sport, they don't have a choice of whether they go to their games mm -hmm. and yet church is somehow optional. No, it doesn't have to be like, it can be the same or more so just baked in rhythm and it can be done in a way that it's life giving. And I think that's one of the things that I'm appreciative to my parents for is I just never heard my parents speak or saw them act negatively towards the church, which means that just that there was a cumulative effect of positive interaction, affinity for, and, and uh, like love for the church, which means that it, it didn't kind of grow as this drudgery for me, but as something I was like, no, this is just part of the rhythm of life. And all that other frustrating stuff was true at the same time. It's like, I was frustrated, but also I loved this place. And, and that was in large part, thanks to their, their upbringing. And yeah. And so it wasn't a, um, I don't remember ever being forced to go to church. Hmm. I, I remember not wanting to go sometimes, but I just knew I, this is what we do. And, mm -hmm. right. and the cumulative effect of that was really profound in my spiritual life, as well as my, my ongoing commitment to churches vital for the Christian life. Yeah. Let's talk a minute about audiences. Uh, the way that Marshall and I sort of uh, both came to the book is that the first half of the book seems to be very much directed toward the PK uh, and, and their experience and sort of speaking into that to say, hey, your voice is being heard and, and maybe mm -hmm. this is something that you've experienced. And so th that makes the book a useful thing for the PK themselves uh, to read from. Uh, then, then the second half of the book 
which is where it really started to dig in for us is is the conversation sort of to the pastor and family. Uh, so so this is this is not only a great book for pastors to read. This is a great book for them to pass on to their kids, maybe read with their kids at the same time. Uh, but Sam S. Rayner the Third says every churchgoer should read this book. If this is a sort of specific thing about pastors, families, and their kids, what's the benefit to the general churchgoer to uh, buy this book, other than supporting the uh, Barnabas Piper Foundation? Yeah, the Barnabas Piper's Kids Foundation is really what they'd be supporting. <laughs> so, um, you know, by all means, do that. But I, the part of my part of my hope in writing it so i really wrote it with the two audiences you mentioned in mind sort of for and from pastors kids and then for pastors with the idea of helping to bring that relationship and in, in as many families as read it to to a healthier place um but the the sort of tangential uh, audience of of the church as a whole I think it's really significant because so much of the pressure that's put on the pastor's kid comes from people who are not in the pastor's family. Right. It is, it is well-meaning, dedicated followers of Christ in the church who have no idea that some of the things they are doing are hurtful. Mm. Um, and, and so there's, there's this aspect of, if you read this, I really hope that it gives you a better sense of how to pray for the pastor's family and then opens eyes to the ways that maybe some of your actions are burdensome to the pastor's family. Things like those expectations. You know, if you're inclined to call your pastor and ask advice about something that's not a pastoral expertise kind of thing, you know, economic stuff or pandemic stuff or whatever, I, I understand looking at him and going, I, I want his counsel because he's pastoral, but maybe that's undue pressure to put on him. If your inclination is to walk up to the pastor's spouse or the pastor's children and make small talk about life, even, even though they don't really know you very well, you don't realize it, but what you're doing is saying that I know you and I've observed you and I'm aware of you and that, that adds pressure. So there's just, there, there are things I think that church members can learn about how to be a really good friend and prayer support and, um, and advocate, I don't know if, I don't know if that's the right word, but just sort of to bolster the pastor's family, as opposed to being part of the burden on the pastor's family. Mm. So that's the, the, that, that's the idea behind every church member would benefit from this. It would make a, I think it would really help pastor's families if church members did read this, cause they would just kind of go, Oh, I didn't realize that when I do this, you feel that. Sure. And that can be really tiresome and, and even discouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marshall, any uh, last observation that you want to make before we uh, take up this whole afternoon? Yeah. Uh, no, just the, the last thing I'd just like to say that I appreciated uh, is just kind of the, the, the frankness of being willing to talk about this subject, which hasn't gotten a lot of airtime, really, right? Like this whole idea of like what what the dynamics between pastoral families and the church look like. And so, you know, you, you advocating within the book, this whole idea of being, you know, open and honest about our limitations and vulnerable with one another um, is just, I think, such a healthy diagnosis or prescription rather for for the church in general, like in this specific area, but also kind of in a broader sense. And so, yeah, I just thank you for being willing to, to speak on something that, you know, not a lot of people have spoken on. 
And uh, I know I've benefited from it. Hopefully my, my kids will too. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm encouraged just hearing the way that you guys have interacted with it is really encouraging to me just to, to know that there are pastors who are sinking their teeth into it and are, are hearing the heart of the book, not just the harder words that are in there. You know, I don't, I didn't intend to, you know, try to tear out the throat of a pastor in this, but there are some places where there's some, there's some pointed things that I wrote. So I'm encouraged that y'all are reading this and reading it with an eye towards your own children and your own church. And that's, I mean, that, that was my hope. So thank you. Yeah. And, and I think for me, I, I was, Alex Walker is our uh, corporate ministries director at our church. Uh, he produces this and he's been cheering. He's the only PK in our, on our staff and he's been sort of <laughs> cheering on behind the computer all along. But I was talking with him this morning as I was uh, prepping the notes and everything. And and I, I got to the section where it, it talks about how the, the church can end up in a bad situation, becoming a rival to the family for the attention of the pastor. And, uh, and I read that to him, and, and he's, he said not just attention, but the energy, right? He said, my dad was always happy to give his attention, but sometimes he was just spent at the end of it. And I thought, man... You know what? And maybe that's outside of the book. Maybe this credit needs to go to Alex and not to you. Uh, but we'll give it to you anyway because you're the guest on the show. Uh, but the, the idea that, that I go home spent a lot of times, right? Even if it's just a study day, sometimes that wears me out more than physical work. And, uh, and my kids are jumping up and down on me and, Daddy, let's go play superheroes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I'm just exhausted. Yeah, I'll be that's the, I'll be the blob. Check. Right. That's, that's my role in the superhero game. Right. Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, I I, I wrote in there that, you know, the pastor's first ministry is to his family, so they mm-hmm. should get your best energy. I didn't write a lot about how specifically that should play out because it's because we are such finite human beings and we just if it's a taxing time at church um, and you have kids sometimes there's just not enough energy to go around. And I think you just cast yourself on the mercy of the Lord there. But I think it also speaks to the importance of pastors really protecting their time off to give to their family. So if you've given five or seven straight days to the church, your family needs a couple of days of just, we're going to read together. We're going to play in the yard together. We're going to like, just I'm yours. And I'm, you know, I'm both recharging my ministry batteries and I'm giving you family energy at just those little practical things like that. Like my dad was as religious about his days off and our summer vacations as he was about anything. And I think it's part of why he was able to be a, be a faithful dad and be sustained in ministry for 33 years at the same church. There's just, there's, there's a, there's a recharging aspect in that too. Yeah. That's something I'm actually admittedly very terrible at. Um, I tend to let one day sow itself into the next and uh, find out that I've done something for the church every day. Uh, so at this point, what I want to do is that awkward sort of, you haven't planned for this, throw it out at you. Any last words you want to throw out that we uh, haven't talked about before we close up? Not Nothing specific. I mean, you guys have, you guys have really... I think covered the heart of the book. And that's, I think that's what I would really hope people hear. It's not, this is not a how to book, you know, it's not seven steps to be a better anything. Um, as much as it is trying to, trying to draw the, those, those three sides of a relationship into a healthier place, really resting on the grace of God to make it happen. Cause I don't think better habits resolve a lot of this. They, they clean up some of the issues, sure, but a lot of it is just a perspective of, 
we are so in need of God's grace from God and then shared with one another to, to navigate these, these complicated relationships. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, the book is The Pastor's Kid by Barnabas Piper. Pick it up wherever books are sold. Use the uh, promo code in and through and get it at retail price. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, and is produced by the Alex Walker. Have a good day. Thanks for being here, Barnes. Yeah, my pleasure.